sport administrators, sport fans and participants themselves. Sarah and Ash sit down with a bunch of inspiring female leaders from within the sports industry who share their journey of achieving their aspirations. It's an honour to have today's guest join us for this week's podcast. Nerily Meadows has over 15 years experience within the sport journalism industry and is an award-winning sports broadcaster, having covered some of the biggest sporting events across the globe. In addition to this, Nerily also hosts her own podcast called Ordinarily Speaking, celebrating resilience in sport and uncovering the human stories behind the, the athletes. Well, today we get to uncover a bit about Nerily, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're really excited to have you. What we we do like starting off with is hearing what your earliest memory of sport is. My earliest memory of sport, well, it would be playing with my brothers. I've got two big brothers and I grew up in a country town. Um, I was literally born in the house that I was raised in because my dad's a doctor and he delivered me. So all of my memories are sort of around that house. Um, we had a little hobby farm and we were very lucky that um, dad was very hands-on and sort of, you know, did whatever we wanted. So we ended up with a, a cricket pitch in the backyard, a third of a basketball court, um, all these sorts of things. But interestingly enough, and I don't know if you count it as sport per se, but recently my dad sent me some photos of um, me as a two-year-old on a uh, flying fox and um, climbing gear as well because we used to go climbing all the time. So uh, a lot of that sort of stuff as well. So I was very, um, I wouldn't say I was sporty because I wasn't necessarily particularly good at any of it, but I definitely love sport from an early age. It's really interesting that though, because I think really every single person we have had on the podcast speaks to the fact that it was about some childhood memory in the backyard with their brothers or sisters, you know, and, and mum or dad had this. And it just obviously impacts everyone so much further in life and I feel like it's such an Australian thing around that in terms of just you know backyard cricket at Christmas time and whatever you were doing do you think that definitely played into how you got involved in sport and how did you what was your first role in sport oh for sure I think like a sense of wanting to belong um from an early age and given that I had two big brothers you know a way in was was sport and that sense of community that comes from around sport. I used to be so jealous of um, one of my brothers playing Aussie rules as we got older. He switched from soccer to, to footy and um, I was so jealous of the camaraderie that they had and the, and the premiership photos and so I'm so grateful now that my, my little niece, nine-year-old niece, plays footy with both the boys and the girls. So that's now a possibility whereas when I was a kid, you know, 25, 30 odd years ago, that, that wasn't a thing. So, um, yeah, I think that sense of community, the sense of mateship, those are the things that are really not unique to Australia, but very strong within Australia. And it's also why cricket is our, is our number one sport really, isn't it? Because it's the only time that all of us come together and watch the same sporting team really, um, every year. And, why it unites us around, as you say, that family time of Christmas and when the sun's out and backyard cricket. So definitely very strong in the Aussie ethos. Yeah, it's so true. And how old were you when you decided, I want to make a career out of working in sport? And this is, you know, obviously I can't play Aussie rules because girls back then, um, I was similar. You know, you can't play footy, but I still want to pursue and, and go and work in sport. Yeah, so I played a lot of sport growing up, played soccer with all the boys, played basketball, netball. My great love was basketball. I wanted to be an Opal, um, but I worked out um, at a 
about the age of 14 that I wasn't going to grow any taller, get any quicker, jump any higher, or to be quite honest, <laughs> much more talented. I'd put in a lot of work and I was probably at the peak. I was the one that set all the screens and, um, you know, took all the charges and, and things like that and had plenty of assists, but that was about the extent of my skills on the basketball court. So it was about 14 when I broke my collarbone twice. Um, playing country state in basketball and I decided that I wanted to watch sport for a living instead um, and that that would probably be more suited to my uh, frame and ability. Ultimate team player is never a bad thing to be. So I think that's... Yeah, but let's be honest, ultimate team player because I just wasn't very good. <laughs> no, no. I'm going to go without the ability to actually shoot. Still claim it. That's fine. It's, it's something <laughs> to hang your hat on for sure. You've obviously gone on though, to forge a very successful career in the media, you know, people would know you from your cricket um, coverage, the AFL, the cricket. Most recently, you covered the Super Bowl in Miami. Can you talk to us about, I guess, your journey to get there and what it was like to get to an event like the Super Bowl? Oh, the Super Bowl was unbelievable. And now in hindsight, knowing that the pandemic um, was about to hit us and we're all sort of going to be stuck in our homes for the vast majority of, of the last 18 months, even more special. Um, I've always wanted to go to a Super Bowl just as a fan, really, because I lived in the States for six months, um, finished my degree over there at Tennessee, and, yeah, always wanted to go to a Super Bowl. It was on the bucket list. I never dreamed that I would be paid to go to a Super Bowl um, and that I'd be part of the, the, the coverage for um, ESPN Australia and New Zealand. So that was just, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. I can't even say it was a dream come true. It was, it was beyond that. So phenomenal experience. Um, but yeah, through the years, I, I guess when I was that 14 year old girl, I sat down with my mom and I worked out the best way of going about it. There was no sports journalism or sports broadcasting university courses at that time. I think there are a few these days that are more specific. Um, so I basically worked out that going to Curtin university studying journalism, even though I didn't actually want to be a journalist, I wanted to be a broadcaster and there is a difference. Um, but that was the best way forward. Um, so studied journalism and basically just skewed all of my assignments as much as possible into that sporting realm, despite being discouraged to do so from quite a few people. Um, and yeah, that's, that's sort of how it started. Um, and as I say, I spent that six months in, in UT and, and did, um, you know, an internship at a local TV station and got to be on the, the sideline of their local team, the Vols, and that was a stadium of 105-odd thousand at the time. It was the biggest stadium in, in the States and sort of I was sideline with my little digital camera just taking photos, <laughs> which is pretty cool. I got one photo of just a blurred helmet because um, a guy sort of came through and I was like, ah! Um, so, yeah, moments like that and then, just stepped my way through it really, just had to work really hard, keep on advancing until the point that I'm at now where um, the goal is to be able to just make enough money off sports broadcasting and in-depth interviews, which was always my passion all along. Yeah, that's really cool. It's um, it's pretty cool to know that you're working something that you can still get so excited about after all these years. Like, you know, there's something that still makes you so happy and you're like basically a fan sitting on the sidelines, which is really it's, cool. It's funny you say that. I get goosebumps when you say that to me because I do. At the end of the day, like when things are hard, the thing I, I um, come back to is that when I'm on air, I just love it. I love, I love what I do. I genuinely, you know, I feel like I really come alive. I often say that it's 
the same me as what my best mates get. You know, when you're sitting around a dinner table and you're all laughing and having the best time or at a winery, things like that with your closest mates in the world, it's the same feeling that I get as when I'm on air um, covering live sports. So I do genuinely just have that love and passion for what I do. Yeah, that's so cool. I think, you know, I say it all the time, like it's not everyone gets to work in an industry that's the passion of billions of people around yeah. the world and you know it's it's nice that you don't take that for granted and can still appreciate it I just want to go back to something you said um when you were studying a lot of people discouraged you from looking at you know sport as a career path why was that well I think just journalism broadcasting entertainment whatever field you've sort of gone down um in general people discourage or well, not discourage but they sort of make you aware of how hard it is um it is a very um competitive industry you know that obviously jobs are getting harder to find and and things like that but also um being a sports uh broadcaster you know narrows that even further than being a female sports broadcaster narrows that even further so I think people were very much encouraging me to keep my options open as they say but even from that early age I just knew um because I moved to to Perth at 17 started uni and I just knew that I don't want to keep my options open because that's not what I want to do. And I just figured that the whole point in life is to aim for what you want to do and back yourself in that if it doesn't work, something else will follow. You're smart enough, you, you know, you're bright enough, you're um, whatever it is enough to be able to make it work if it, if it doesn't work out in the ideal. But you may as well shoot for the stars to begin with, right? Um, and then at least then where whatever you're falling underneath, at least it's, a little bit underneath and not uh, underachieving of what you you perhaps could have done. And then you can always say, oh, at least I had a crack as well. Never sit there wondering, oh, wonder if, you know, if I actually tried this, but you'll never die wondering. And obviously it's worked out very well for you. Well, yeah, I often um, sort of say, you know, that fear of failure is a really real thing, but I I would never want to miss out on something based on a fear of failure. Um, and you just, you just don't know. And I try to make all of my decisions in life. And I'm fortunate that I have, you know, a family that supports me and things like that. So look, I understand that not everyone is in the same position and different people are driven by different motivations, but I try and live my life based on what is the best life experience. Um, that's why I went to India earlier this year. What is going to teach me something about myself? What, you know, and, and the beauty of, of living your life that way is you don't know where you're going to end up. Like I say, I didn't even dream of going to the Super Bowl or hosting the IPL. That's happened because I sort of lived a life trying to, to do the best life experience as opposed to the most security or the most money or the most safety. Um, and look, that's just for me. Different people are driven by different things, but I, I always hated that question of where do you want to be in five years' time. Um, once again, I understand that some people need that to stay on course and stay driven. But for me, I was like, if I know where I am in five years' time, that means something's gone wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't like knowing where I'm going to end up. It's it's fun so not knowing sometimes. You mentioned it just there when you, you were chatting um, about India and what that was like. What was it like going over and broadcasting for the IPL? Like that's just another experience, you know, on top of obviously the Super Bowl is one thing over in America, but 
Um, you know, we think we love cricket here in Australia, but over there in India, it is incredible. Yeah, and just the sheer size of the operation. Um, I was in a bubble with about 400 people um, and in the studio bubble and, yeah, extraordinary experience. And the thing that I will always take away from this is the – people that I was working with were just phenomenal. I understand why people always say, come back from India and say they just fell in love with the place. The, the people are just so warm, so kind-hearted and caring. And it was a real shift in perspective for me because um, I, when I agreed to go over there, there was only about 15,000 cases a day of COVID. By the time I got into hotel quarantine, that had risen to about fifty to 60,000 cases a day. And then obviously, as we know, the peak was almost 450,000 cases a day. So the people I was working with were dealing with it on the outside every single day. And it was a real perspective shift for me when I realised that the people I'm working with are worried about their family on the outside and they know that where they are in the bio bubble right now is the safest place in India for them. Whereas... I didn't have to worry about my family each day. Yes, they were a little concerned about me, but I kept reassuring them I'm safe in the bubble, I'm going to be fine. But the fact that the colleagues that I was working with every single day would say to me, are you okay? Is your family okay? I know they've banned flights. Let me know if you need to speak, you know, talk to me. Or, And I just thought, what unbelievably lovely human beings that they're – Every single one of them had somebody, at least one person that they cared about or related to on the outside who was dealing with COVID and they were making phone calls to try and find oxygen and hospital beds and things like that. Yet they still asked me every morning how I was doing. And once again, I come back to life experiences like that is such an important bit of perspective to learn and, um, and way of living a life with kindness. Um, and, yeah, I will... I will hold that dear to my heart, that experience for the rest of my life. They're just really beautiful people to work with. That's nothing to do with the cricket, obviously, which is what you're <laughs> I love the cricket as well, obviously. Um, but when I, I think when I worked on the IPL last year, so that was in the UAE, that was more I was live at the cricket um, because it was in the UAE. And there were moments there where there were four international captains on one field. You just don't get that in domestic yeah. cricket leagues, right? It was insane. Um, so just to watch games where, you know, you've got the captain of Australia, the captain of England, the captain of New Zealand and the captain of Afghanistan all on one ground at one time, like that's crazy. Yeah, um, that's incredible. So, yeah, definitely never take for, for granted the um, those opportunities that I've had. It's from, you know, all level of just being a human being to actually being a sports fan. It's, um, yeah, been a... A wonderful ride in between the hotel quarantines. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people see, um, you know, broadcasters, you know, you're on the TV, you might do a 15 or a 20-minute <clears throat> spiel, but there's so much work that goes into it before you get to that, you know, one hour or two hour of broadcast before the game. Can you give us a bit of insight into what it's like to prepare? Well, especially for something like the Super Bowl, which isn't your, you know, native sport back in Australia. You, you can follow it here in Australia, but you still need to get a real understanding of, of the sport itself. Yeah, so... I just consume a lot of it, um, whether it's the actual sport or podcasts or, you know, news reports, features, whatever it is, I consume a lot of it. 
um, my greatest way of understanding something is actually understanding it as opposed to just remembering it. Um, I tend, my brother's an actor. He tends to read something once and remembers it. I have to comprehend it in order for um, it to sink in. So I consume a lot of media. Um, that's where hotel quarantine also comes in handy. For example, in the build up to the IPO, when I'm hosting the whole thing, I always make sure that it's not about me getting through unscathed. It's about me giving whoever has chosen to spend their time watching the best possible experience and being respectful to them for giving their time. So for example, um, for the IPL, I spent that week in hotel quarantine in the build up, just doing fact sheet after fact sheet and just making sure it was all sinking in, listening to interviews, all that sort of stuff. I would use my contacts that I would have Aussie contacts and teams and call them for background information, more comprehension, um, things like that. So you really use your, your contacts and also just, covering sport for a long time, you learn what the stories are and they don't tend to differ too much from sport to sport. Um, it does, yeah, there's a lot of similarities in in the questions you can ask and, and the angles that you can go down. So I would say all of those things. But, for example, when I, because I'm a West Australian and when I moved to Sydney, I, you know, enjoyed NRL, but I certainly didn't live and breathe it like the people I was broadcasting to. And once again, it was about respecting their knowledge rather than just trying to get through and it one word can give you away like if you say judiciary tribunal referee umpire sideline boundary um premiership ring medal you know one word and they go she doesn't know what she's talking about so every day i would go home with a headache because i'd concentrated so damn hard to make sure that i didn't give myself away and disrespect them as a viewer it's so true. You can tell when you're sitting in a crowd at the MCG and someone says something like, come on, ref, and you're like, well, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> you mentioned earlier when we were talking about sort of your journey and, you know, how hard it is to get into this industry and then particularly being female. And obviously the point of our podcast is to make sure, you know, younger females are aware of the amazing people um, that they can look up to and, and the opportunities that are there. But I guess sometimes do have to fight a little bit harder to get through when you've got you know yourself and Kelly Underwood and Mel McLaughlin Daisy Pierce there's so many people doing such great things um, so many females doing such great things in sports media have you ever had to I guess face any sexism or really challenging situations because you're female in your career look I think it's definitely gotten a lot better but look it's still a male dominated industry and I think that become becomes a bit of a throwaway line this day and age male dominated industry but Essentially what that means is a culture existed before we were allowed into it or before we were invited into it. And that culture does exist. And so whilst people try and change it, you're still fitting into something that already was there when you weren't. So I think there's still changes to be made, particularly behind the scenes. As you say, it's getting better on air, still not great, but it's better than it was six years ago when there was pretty much no women on the broad, footy broadcast when you're talking specifically about footy there. So it is improving, but behind the scenes, there are still so few female producers. Um, I can count on basically both hands pretty much all the female producers I've worked in in Australian sports media um, in a 
what is it, 16, 17 year career now or something like that. I've worked with more overseas than I have um, in just in a short space of time. Um, so I think that is one area that we really, really need to get better at. And if you are a female producer out there, you, you know, you love sport, but you don't really want to chase the on-air side of things, get amongst it. Um, we need women behind the scenes exchanging ideas um, and, and representing a different point of view because the only way we're going to get better and more inclusive is if there are more voices and faces and names at the table making the decisions. So um, I would love to see more women on air, absolutely, and I would love to see um, less of the pitting of pitting women up against each other for particular roles. Um, and I, But I would 100% like to see more slash any women behind the scenes. Yeah, it's really interesting because if you're not within that industry, we, you know, for us, we only see the people on air. We don't understand what it looks like, you know, behind the scenes and and clearly there's there's a gap. There are, it is funny I find listening and, you know, some of the female commentators are getting really good raps it's like people are shocked that they're so good. And it's, and for us, you know, it's the same as, you know, female leaders in sports administration. It's like, no, we know that they've been good. They just needed a platform or a voice to, to actually have a shot at, at showcasing how good they are. The number of times that I was asked, particularly early in my career, by the man in the street or the man in the pub, oh, do you even like sport? Just... How do you how do you even answer that? You think I can get in front of a camera and and talk about sport without a knowledge and understanding and love for it in the first place? I mean, it's competitive enough industry as it is. Let alone if I wasn't actually interested in it. Um, so you know, questions like that um, happen, and and luckily that's that's getting less. And I think also social media gets a bad rap in many ways. I understand why a lot of people don't like it, but I've had some really tremendous experiences on social media and it's another way for broadcasters to show their personality and passions outside of just what they do on air. So I think it's it's been quite a cool space for that. But, yeah, it's um, we're, we're getting better, but there's still a long, long, long way to go. Yeah, and in addition to everything you do um, within your broadcast, you also have your own podcast, um, Ordinarily Speaking. How did you come about starting that? So I um, basically wanted to do in-depth interviews. I've always loved that. It's a passion of mine. Mental health has always been a passion of mine. My mum's in um, mental health and so I was sort of brought up with the power of reframing and all those sort of things. Um, And I've always loved that human side of athletes and I think athletes have a really powerful opportunity and platform to create social change and inclusion. And this was another way of, of doing that. And just through the um, length of my career and the relationships that I had built with people, um, I had the trust of lots of players. So I knew that they would take the call when I asked them. And obviously not all of them want to, but um, yeah. And it's you know, it, it never ceases to amaze me how honest and open uh, people will be with me when uh, I do an episode with them or an interview with them. So, yeah, it's been a really great opportunity to try and use sport as a platform to celebrate resilience and make sports people relatable because there's a couple of things that come from it. One, hopefully it helps the people listening. It can be a bit of a um, 
a tool almost of, of people who are going through their own issues, whether it's grief or mental health or alcoholism, whatever it is, they can say to their family, this is what I'm going through. Listen to Peter Siddle talking about being an alcoholic. This is how I feel. Um, there's also the, the fact that the sports person finds it cathartic. Um, I've never had somebody regret doing an interview that I know of anyway. Um, so I think that that's a really important thing as well. But then also the third thing is that it does make sports people relatable and hopefully stops, you know, horrible abuse of sports people um, because I think a lot of the time we do forget that they are human beings. You do have a real skill. I mean, I listen to it and there are some episodes where they really open up to you and you do have these raw and honest conversations um does it ever surprise you how much they open up or you you know you kind of expect it now no it always surprised me a bit usually I talk to people beforehand depending on who it is some people prefer to some people don't um and some people I know more than others Peter Siddle who I just brought up I'm mates with him but I was still shocked by how much he sort of went there um so yeah it does surprise me I never take It's a bit like being on air. I never take it for granted. I never take it for granted that somebody has trusted me with their most intimate story Um, because I think the moment you do that, you you lose your intent in the first place and I think intent as a broadcaster and a journalist and as a human being, to be honest, is probably the most important thing. Um, And, yeah, some of the, the moments, as you say, they're really raw and... I, I appreciate and respect the fact that people trust me with that and then hopefully that, you know, helps people listening to, to really engage and feel like their own issues are being heard through someone else. You spoke earlier that, you know, you don't like to look too far ahead and the five-year plan isn't necessarily um, what you do, but what about your legacy? Like what would you like? that to be you spoke there around you know more than just broadcasting and sport it was mental health and how would you like to be remembered jeez i'm only 35 i'm talking about legacy already this is a bit scary you've already got a very big legacy so i think um yeah i think we can probably speak to your legacy then if you don't want to but i'm sure you have some thought that sounds much more fun um my legacy look i have always tried even as a as a kid to provide a safe space for people to be who they are and whether that's feeling sad whether that's laughing uncontrollably I I love to provide a safe space for people I would like to hope that I've helped people take on adventures and life experiences without a fear of failure or acknowledging the fear of failure and and doing it anyway because I mean as I say People are only, um, you know, it's not it's not brave if you're not scared. And, and being brave is being scared for just a little bit longer than everyone else. Um, so I hope that if I can encourage people to travel more, to, you know, open up more, to be free and proud to be themselves, and that's a pretty wonderful thing. But also the older I get, the more I really hope that, not just young women, but young men understand equality and the importance of diversity and the importance of having more voices in the room. And sometimes when it gets really, really hard and I, I want to give up, I, one thing that keeps me going other than just my love and passion for the job is the fact that if I stop where I am, then all I'm doing is leaving it there for the next young woman that comes through. 
Um, and the further I can push, the further, you know, we've, we've pushed it a little bit more. And, that, and that's a collective thing with all the women in the media at the moment. So, um, yeah, th- those are probably the things that I care most about. Um, and I guess on the mental health side of things, I hope that I've helped change the conversation and the narrative um, that it's, you know, toughness is not related to crying or being open. And, in fact, I think vulnerability is strength. And if you are willing to share your story and share your emotions on a public scale, well, that's as bloody tough as it comes, I think. Absolutely. I think you spoke to that so well there and you can see your passion come through. Like you're not speaking about, oh, I want to go work on this event and that event. It was the real, I guess, the story behind it all and where you can have the most impact. And I think that's really nice and some really good advice for, for young females who are trying to get started in this industry. Like you said, there's plenty of opportunities there for them, um, but it's just, you know, the people are paving, like yourself are paving the way. So we really appreciate it and we really appreciate your time today and we look forward to continuing to follow your career and hopefully following the, the next generation of um, females in the media. Well, thank you. And look, don't think for a second that I think I'm the first one to do this. There's plenty of other women who came before me and I, I have recently spent a lot of time on the phone with lots of them just to almost thank them for what they've done because I really think it's important to acknowledge those that have come before us and, and faced harder things than what every generation will afterwards. So, um, yeah, there's a lot more women out there doing better things and even in not just the sports media but the Julia Banks and Brittany Higgins and people like that in Australia right now are, are paving a way to, to make real social change. And, um, yeah, I think the older you get as a, as a woman, the more you really understand and, and realise that. But, anyway, now I'm just blabbering on and I appreciate that you guys had me on your podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sports Intuition Podcast. If you did, we would greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave us a rating and any reviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.